Hello and welcome. My name is Federico Ast. I am president at the Cooperative Cleros and welcome to a new episode of the Decentralized Justice Broadcast. Our guest today is Eric Alston. Eric received his MA in Economics at the University of Maryland and his JD from the University of Chicago. He is a scholar in residence in the Leeds School of Business at the University of Colorado Boulder and he also serves as a research associate with the Comparative Constitution Project. His research and teaching is centered in the fields of law and economics and institutional analysis, including the design and implementation of constitutions and digital governance models. So welcome, Eric Austin, to this new episode of the Decentralized Justice Broadcast. Hello and welcome. My name is Federico Ast. I am president at the Cooperative Cleros. Welcome to a new episode of the Decentralized Justice Broadcast. Our guest today is Eric Alston. Eric received his MA in Economics at the University of Maryland and his JD from the University of Chicago. He's a scholar in residence at the Elite School of Business at the University of Colorado Boulder, and he also serves as a research associate with the Comparative Governance uh, Constitutions Project. And his research and teaching is centered in the fields of non-economics, institutional analysis, including the design and implementation of constitutions and digital governance models all topics that are really dear to me and that I have researched a lot. So I'm super happy to have Eric here because I have um, I read lots of the things he writes. So welcome, Eric. It's a pleasure to have you in the podcast. Thank you. No, I'm, uh, I'm excited to be here. It's, uh, it's interesting to see the extent to which constitutional design is a germane topic for sort of novel organizational forms in, in the digital realm, so to speak. Let's let's get started. I mean, tell tell us a bit um, about your career. How you got? I mean, what took you into the type of, of research and work you are doing now around constitutions and, and DAOs? Yeah, absolutely. So I I did my JD as you noted at University of Chicago, and that involved expert technical assistance to constitutional reform processes around the world, and so advising on confidential drafts you know, uh, suggesting design options as and where they were requested, those kinds of things. And so a very applied hands-on look at how nation states um, effectively have the many different ways that nation states have coordinated their fundamental governance processes through defining a set of secondary rules. And so that's not blockchain, not even close. So I was working on constitutions as well as economic institutions in an academic context. And some of my economic institutional work is very much focused on how organizations work, how they're designed, why people voluntarily bind themselves to an organization as compared to just contracting on the market. And around, you know, 2017, I'm hearing a lot more furor about blockchain, decide I need to understand it well enough to kind of speak intelligently about it. And I became convinced. I was like, wow, this is a really interesting way to coordinate voluntary activity in the digital realm. And so began, you know, thinking in topics in the area. And naturally, I gravitated to a topic that was near and dear to my own heart, which was that of constitutions. And so my first publication in the area was simply entitled Constitutions and Blockchains, Competitive Governance of Fundamental Rule Sets, arguing that permissionless cryptocurrency networks can be understood as a form of private constitutional ordering. That's pretty unique. 
It's not to say they're the first private organizations to define a constitution that constrains the sovereign, but boy, do they do it effectively and reliably in a digital context. The argument being the rules of the network, when well specified, constrain the incentives of network validators to act on behalf of a larger constituency, that of ordinary users of a particular permissionless cryptocurrency network. And so I spell out a variety of other sort of implications of understanding these networks as constitutional orders, and I assume we'll probably get into some of that in our ensuing conversation. But then I published a follow-up entitled, Can Permissionless Blockchains Avoid Governance in the Law?, spelling out that one of the, the, the governance layers is the, that of the protocol, which again can be understood as a constitution. That was then followed by blockchain networks as constitutional and competitive polycentric orders. And so oddly enough, of the few people who've been writing about constitutions and blockchains, I've been doing it since the early days. And so now I think people are Googling constitutions, cryptocurrency, blockchain network, and my name keeps coming up because that's how I perceive these networks as a form of uh, coordinating governance, so to speak. Before, before getting into, into DAOs and blockchains, I mean, tell, tell us a bit, how does a constitution building process work in the offline, you know, off-chain, you know, government, nation-state world? What does this look like? And so it, 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 it's been quite a few centuries since nation states have been constituting themselves, so to speak. And I don't view the first national constitution as necessarily being that of the United States. That's a heated debate, but let me explain what I mean by that, which is Germany and the UK they do not have a single document that says, this is the important governance document. Herein are all the ultimate rules. Instead, different agreements for major sort of organs of government emerged almost spontaneously, which is the powers that be that were operating in different capacities for both the German and the, and, and the uh, British governments were effectively they define components of their relationship that became sufficiently important over time that they wanted to enshrine it in a sort of a special document. But they didn't think at the time, hey, we need a single document that contains all of this stuff. I think it's the unique nature of the United States revolutionary founding that they were kind of starting from scratch, so to speak. And so they said, we're going to set aside all of the important stuff in this singular document. But the reason I belabor the German and the British examples is to argue that this process is kind of emergent in human orders. And so constitutions serve a really important coordinating function for organizations that reach a scale to where no one can know everyone who's involved in the governance of that organization. When you have that large of an organization, there tend to be significant benefits to setting aside these are the rules that say how we, how we make decisions. These are the rules that say how we enforce those decisions, et cetera. Because there's actually a really deep recursive problem in human collective decision-making that secondary rules solve. Now, you and I are about to see one another in Paris in a few weeks. And let's imagine that our, that our choice of dinner location is far higher stakes than it actually is. 
And so we're we're going around with the group that we're going to have dinner with. And I begin to sense that the group is going to move in a direction I don't like in terms of where we're going to dinner. So I say, wait a second. We haven't even set out how we're going to make this decision. You all sound like you're going to do simple majority. But this is so important. This needs to be a super majority decision. Because I know I've got enough people in my camp to veto under a super majority rule the outcome I don't want. So the issue is, is that unless you decide on a decision rule before you set out to make the decision as a group, it creates this sort of strategic recursion in challenging the decision rule if you believe you're going to lose a particular decision. So what's a second design feature that's canonical to this type of thing, to the articulation of secondary rules, aka constitutions? It's that of entrenching these secondary rules as compared to the processes of ordinary collective decision-making. Because the other problem becomes, if it's as easy to change the secondary rules as it is to make ordinary decisions, whoever controls the collective decision-making apparatus can rewrite all of the rules whenever they want. And that doesn't provide the type of coordinative certainty that I'm describing to people within a given system. It also runs the risk of sort of the tyranny of the majority writ large in terms of it becomes winner takes all if the party that takes control of a system can rewrite all of the rules of that system. It means everything is up for grabs in every electoral context. Let me let me continue with this metaphor of the dinner in Paris. I mean, and ask, you know, why do we even need decision rules? I mean, I don't like your group, where do you want to go for dinner? So let me just pick some of the guys who want to come with me to the place I like, and let's leave everyone, let me split and go to where they want. So do we need a constitution for sticking together or just going our ways? So you're right, actually, at the level of a, a particular group for dinner, I don't really want to go to dinner with people who are like, before we go to dinner, let us set out a constitution for our evening. <laughs> That's not my kind of evening, and that's not the kind of evening I'm looking forward to you with to you in Paris with. And so it's more that once you hit a certain scale in a group size, a variety of things change. And so for certain types of things, you may never need to hit that scale. Let people go their own way, let them make their own decisions. I think that's that's consonant with the principle of subsidiarity. And to the extent that's possible, that's probably more efficient because it doesn't require the costly articulation of a constitutional charter and all the disagreement that that can carry with it. But guess what? To produce certain things, it requires a certain scale of people. And once you bring enough people on board to a given shared project, there's going to be differences in vision about what the project is about how it should proceed, and there's going to be different underlying interests within the system that don't always agree with one another. Not having a sort of clearly set out set of secondary rules can lead to a variety of problems as and when those interests conflict with one another and as and when those visions conflict with one another, especially in periods of true uncertainty. And so it's more that 
having a shell that everyone sufficiently agreed to at a prior period can actually reduce conflict over important collective decisions, but also make it easier for a group to proceed in cases of true uncertainty. Um, what is the right time to, to start with this constitution building process? I mean, do we already need to have some project in, I mean, in motion with some users, or we should do this before we have users? Because after we have users, then we kind of already are in a situation of conflict, maybe. I mean, how, when is the right time to do this? So, in a perfect world that doesn't exist, it would be write the constitution, attract all of the right people, and then hit go on your organization. That has never existed in practice. Which is to say, humans organize around one another, typically spontaneously at first. I've studied the mineral frontier in Colorado. Initially, people just show up because they heard there's gold in them, their mountains. And so they go looking for gold. What's the simplest solution? Find a ridge that no one else is on and start digging. But eventually enough people start looking for that gold and there are no more free ridges. So how do you determine that your position relative to someone else is not actually infringing on a valuable claim that they have already staked and begun developing? And so enough people load into those mountains and you have camps of people and they start articulating their rules so that people who arrive know this is how you stake a claim. This is what we do to people that we suspect of jumping someone else's claim. Claim jumping is what it was called at the time. And so that means the, the process of defining rules to coordinate behavior in complex human social groups is an emergent and iterative one. And so in an ideal world where we knew everything, and we could predict all downstream uncertainties, you would want to design your constitution before you ever even assembled a group. The problem being is these things are dynamic, and as importantly, their legitimacy hinges on people believing that the governing document represents them in a true and faithful sense. How are you going to say that a, that a document that was drafted before anyone arrived for a particular group is representative of them because the group was a null set at the time of its drafting. And so for me, it's, it's, it not only flies in the sort of emergent history of human governance as I, as I read it, but it's mm -hmm. also the case that in order for it to represent people, they need to be involved in it in some sense to be able to feel that it does truly represent their interests. Um, how, so how does this process work? Let's say we want to start a constitution building process. What are the steps? Is there a guidebook? I mean, to do that or yeah, how does this work in practice? So there tend to be, I would say sort of, it, let me back up a second. In practice, it has been tried many, many, many different ways. And so that could be the subject of several different podcasts, which is different nations' experiences with slightly to significantly different constitutional drafting processes. But it tends to involve kind of two key groups, experts and those the Constitution is representing. To me, at its heart, 
You don't want every last individual just taking a whack at drafting constitutions if they've never read a single constitution, let alone studied them extensively. I've studied them extensively, and I still don't pretend to know every last aspect of constitutional design, because that would be that would come close to claiming you understand every last aspect of human behavior. And if anyone claims that to you, you should run the other way, because we are <laughs> complex and hard to predict creatures. And so for that very reason, there's, it, it, there's a deep role for expertise. Notwithstanding that, there is an even deeper role for the individuals for whom a constitution is meant to represent their fundamental governance preferences. You might take that to mean everyone should be involved in drafting. That doesn't happen in practice. For one thing, it's pretty costly to demand an output from every citizen of a nation of millions. When you might be able to obtain their input through a more strategic series of processes. But those processes, as I've noted, tend to involve expertise as well as public input by those who are called constituents of a given constitution. Sometimes it can start with a public consultation process. Other times it starts with the experts generating a draft and then soliciting public feedback. But those tend to be the two ways. In either case, your first phase should ideally result in some measure of draft or overarching design principles. And then you either seek feedback from experts to you know, flesh out the principles that were defined by the public in a public consultation process, or vice versa, where you get consultation from the public on a draft generated by experts. But at the end of the day, it's meant to sort of marry the two needs. One is a relatively technical understanding of the type of thing that properly resides in a constitution and the type of functions that a constitution is meant to achieve, given the animating purpose of the organization being governed by that constitution. It's not clear to me that every DAO needs a bill of rights to cover, you know, say, the rights of the incarcerated. I hope most DAOs are not putting people in prison as a function of the commitments that they are voluntarily coordinating. And so that, that's meant to make the point that, you know, it, it is a very context-specific document that should be weighed in light of that context. And the experts need to understand that context well enough, as well as the general menu of design options that exist available to choose from. So no rights for the incarcerated, but perhaps economic rights are very important for certain blockchain communities. Let, let me push back um, here a bit. You know, in the traditional world of constitutions, I mean, the federalists, you know, 18th century, obviously people were not in position to contribute because well, distances and, and stuff. I mean, but in the world of DAOs, I mean, everyone could potentially be involved through online governance or online uh, voting. So, I mean, the question is, what are, so, what is the same and what changed from the world of you know, traditional constitutions to the world of DAO constitutions? So the first big difference is DAOs, by and large, are private organizations. They are not claiming to be the final government with sovereign authority over everyone in a particular geographic jurisdiction. That has deep structural implications for the nature of their governance. 
which is to say, at a minimum, many people can exit DAOs at much lower cost than that of moving from their country of residence and declaring citizenship in another country. I've never changed citizenship. I know some people who have, and that is neither a simple nor a cheap process. And so the fact that exit costs are low, I view as actually an important advantage for these communities, because it means they don't need to think through every last detail of every member's preferences and actions within the system, because sometimes it's more representative simply to effectively, you know, allow people to exit when a sufficiently important decision has been made that goes one way that cuts against the preferences of others. So the first big distinction I draw between public constitutions, that governing a nation, the constitution that everyone's heard of, and is, is that of a public government and a private organization. But there's more. DAOs are digital organizations. They live online. They coordinate people's activity using a, a network, so to speak. That means their rules have a level of finality in many instances, although not all, that are very attractive. And so this is why I understand the blockchain itself to be a set of secondary rules. They're entrenched, they execute finally, and they constrain the exercise of sovereign authority, that of the validators, as against a larger class of participants on the network. And so in that sense, there that's that the the definitional characteristic I'm spelling out here is that of their transparency and finality. That is not unique to blockchain networks. What is unique to blockchain networks is that they are distributedly governed. We could have an interesting discussion about what is the right level of decentralization. Perfect decentralization rarely exists in practice for a variety of reasons. But nonetheless, there is not a centralized, unchecked concentration of authority in blockchain networks if they're sufficiently permissionless. So I'm not here to tell you anything that calls itself a blockchain constrains the sovereign. Some of them don't. Certainly they don't in rug pulls. That's what enables them to pull the rug, so to speak. But at the end of the day, if it is a meaningfully decentralized blockchain, it does not have a single central authority. And so the three sort of components of DAO land that are unique are they're private organizations, they're digital, and they're distributedly governed. Those three things are kind of definitional characteristics that I think are really important to understand before thinking about what is an appropriate set of secondary rules, aka a constitution, to better define the governance processes of this given permissionless blockchain network. You know, um, I find this idea of how decentralized the governance should be super interesting. We launched uh, a while ago, uh, a DAO called Proof of Humanity to build a civil resistance registry. And we kind of saw it as an experiment on decentralized governance. And we kind of tried to decentralize it like a, at a quite early stage. And it didn't work so well, you know. <laughs> the idea was to have like a one person, one vote, I mean, based on Proof of Humanity. And what happened is that it got full of, I mean, trolls and, and people, I mean, 
uh, that didn't contribute a lot, claiming to have a lot of authority in governance because of you know, democracy. And then, um, yeah, I mean, there's even an ethnographic study done by, by blockchain Go about what went wrong uh, on, on that experiment. So tell a bit more about, uh, I mean, what is the right moment to decentralize something and how decentralized uh, should these DAOs be? That's that's the million dollar question, um, and or perhaps trillion dollar question, given given inflation these days, and actually the import <laughs> of uh, underlying what is the right level of input for governance to be sufficiently efficient, but nonetheless sufficiently representative of those it is governing. Do I want people voting on you know say bridge design characteristics that I drive over regularly? Why would I assume that the average voter over the age of 18 understands engineering principles well enough, as well as bridge construction specifically enough to where they should just be able to vote? Let's vote on all of our bridge materials. Problem is, is if people never drive on the bridge, even if they have a requisite level of information to make that decision, maybe they want cost minimization. They're like, tax me less. I never drive on that thing. Let it fall down. And so to me, the, 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 uh, what I'm sort of making light of, but it's underlying a very serious point is what types of decisions are best suited to democratic input? Make no mistake, I want to live in a country that preserves democratic ideals to a great extent. I think they're great, but I think demo democracies work well within constitutional constraints. Hitler was democratically elected. And so ultimately, there's no guarantee that vis-a-vis -vis the minority to a particular decision, that expression of the democratic will is good. And so that's why you tend to put guardrails around the expression of the democratic will in order to say, yes, for all of these things, we've got nothing better than a simple vote. That will carry us forward for this particular issue provided it doesn't infringe the rights of individuals within our group. And so absent the sort of guardrails around collective decision-making, democracy can go in a lot of weird directions. And so when is, you know, when is decentralization desirable? This answer is very similar to the principle of subsidiarity, wherever possible. The problem being is there's many, 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 many situations where it's suboptimal to require everyone's input. I'm very interested in experiments with liquid democracy, but do I want a nudge notification on my phone for every decision made by my local city council where I reside, my local city council where I work, the legislators of the state in which I reside, the legislators of the country in which I reside, we could even ladder up to the UN if we wanted to make my input perfect. I would literally just be swiping away notifications so I could see the actual business on my phone the entire day. And chances are, a lot of those decisions don't affect my interests that directly. So I'd be sifting through, waiting for the one that actually implicates my preferences strongly enough for me to engage. So what is the solution to that huge attention problem that even, you know, we've already seen emergent in blockchain systems instead of delegated representation? 
it's more efficient to vote on someone who then goes and and represents, hopefully represents your interests within that larger set of decisions, in part because they're simultaneously representing the pork farmers in the county, the academics in the county. And if there's enough academics in a given county, that representative probably does take into account their concerns because otherwise they'll get booted out next election. And so that is not an argument that that process is perfect. That's an argument that that is an emergent institution because of the attention costs that otherwise proliferate associated with everyone should be pulled on every single decision that affects them. Problem is, is most decisions, yes, they affect people, but not to a level to where it would be worth it for them to show up to the state house and sit there and make that decision themselves. And so to me, a big thing that's often lost in, in the justifiable quest for more democratic systems of private ordering, a thing that's often lost is the attention cost problem, which is why we tend to have representative decision-making in so many political systems, as well as many private organizations out there. Um, and how does this compare, I mean, this idea of participatory governance compared with another idea, actually, we discussed um, the Harvard conference a few weeks ago of, you know, a market for dictators, you know, you have different options of dictators and then you don't have to get involved that much. You just join the organization where you feel more comfortable or you like more or whatever. Yeah, I've actually uh, written an entire paper dedicated to that topic which is the easier it is for people to exit, the more traditionally you see a highly centralized governance process. And the narrative goes like this. If I can, at almost no cost, choose another organization that's doing something almost identical to one I'm considering leaving, and everyone in that organization has a similar outside option, How unconstrained is the dictator of that organization? They're considering what to do next. They think, oh, I could do this thing that maximizes my, you know, rents, my power, you name what the dictator wants, but it'll disenfranchise many people in my group. And they think through and they say, oh, but all of those people for $3 can jump to this other organization. Well, then all the dictator can claim in terms of rents is, you know, the equivalent of up to $3 times the number of individuals within that group. Even if what's technically on the table is a much, much larger pie, if they raid that pie, everyone leaves and they can no longer produce what everyone is there to do. And so in practice, historically, until the advent of the digital age at a minimum, The benefits of highly centralized decision-making within a context where people can exit at sufficiently low cost have tended to predominate, which is how long did it take the Ethereum network to respond fully to the proof of stake or to the DAO hack that led to the emergence of proof of stake? It took quite a while. Would it have taken a corporation that long to make a decision about such a large and public hack? It probably would have been overnight. And so the problem with highly decentralized decision-making, in addition to being costly of everyone's attention, it takes longer. How legitimate would a vote be perceived if it was, you know, you have one hour this evening to make this vote. How many people would miss that vote? 
How many people wouldn't have time to look into the issues to where they just don't vote because they don't understand the underlying trade-offs of the decision in question? And so the more you tend to democratize decision-making processes, the longer they take. And sometimes you can actually have outright gridlock, which is no decision. And so effectively, there are huge efficiencies to centralized decision-making, but the more that people can't exit, the more you have a monopoly in a particular area, the more the dictator thinks, huh, these people can't get out at all. How much of this pie can I grab? And so the more competition an organization faces tends to be consonant with lower exit costs for that organization's members. They can go work somewhere else. They can go contribute somewhere else. They can go find a different place of worship, so to speak. This analysis is general across all human organizations. The lower those exit costs, the less you might need much more democratized decision-making, so to speak. But the higher the exit costs, the greater the benefits to creating constraints on the process of collective decision-making, as well as constitutional guarantees for the rights of individuals within that system. So in a world of, I mean, imaginary world of, you know, zero uh, cost to exit any organization, it would, everything would be centralized in the governance? That's a deep question. <laughs> what, the reason I said prior to the digital age as a qualifier in my last, uh, in my last uh, statement was, I think technology has changed the calculus of certain things. Because I was arguing democratic decision-making is more costly. I would still stand by that, but it's become much less costly now than it was, you know, a hundred years ago. For a geographically dispersed organization, running a vote is actually incredibly costly in a world where you can't communicate digitally. And if you need proof of vote, you collect it from everyone and you, you get it to one central place and then you count it all and you have to have enough security procedures on that so that everyone believes that vote was tamper-proof. Definitely, in prior periods, the point I was making carries more aggressively. That being said, it's still more costly to conduct a vote, notwithstanding a variety of really cool digital technologies we have that enable us, I think, to govern ourselves in a more decentralized or democratic fashion. The big question is, where do the efficiencies still hold in terms of centralized decision-making? Because I agree, technological change has disrupted sort of what organizations are possible. But some of the same old problems do persist. I would argue that attention costs is one of them, which is, yes, I could get a push notification for every single legislative thing facing me, that technology, we're there. My attention costs for dealing with that every day, in addition to my Slack, my Signal, my Telegram, my Discord, you know, it would be like, it just, I'm already drowning in notifications. Welcome to the club, legislative proposals. I'm not going to vote on any of you. <laughs> um, I was reading a book uh, I recommend called How Democracies Die. And they study lots of processes of how democracies work. And one of the points they make is that, so about the US. So we already discussed how formal institutions are made, you know, 
the separation of powers, etc., the, the design of institutions. But what they say in this book is that um, that's not enough for um, you know uh, uh, governance organization to work. You also need another thing that are informal norms of respect, uh, informal norms of you know of how to disagree, how to agree to disagree. I mean, speak a bit about that because you can have the best design of uh, rules of formal rules, but if you, don't, if you don't have the informal norms to back that up, you might get into trouble. Yeah, and the, the sort of overarching bucket, I would place the type of norms regarding governance, regarding disagreement with your opposition within a complex human system. I would place a lot of that into the bucket of legitimacy. And legitimacy is something actually that the blockchain gov folks know a lot about, probably more than I do. But at the end of the day, the shorthand for legitimacy that I use is a sort of litmus test. What causes people who lose a given contentious decision within a system be willing to not only stick around, but say this system is more important than my loss in this particular moment? To me, that's kind of the crux of legitimacy, hmm. which is we contested over this group decision. I lost. And it's not to say I'm now smiling because I lost the outcome. I will still regret losing the outcome. But in systems that enjoy a high degree of legitimacy, people aren't saying, I can't wait to leave. Or this is more to the point in terms of characterization of modern democracies that are displaying some level of backsliding, including the United States. It can convert into... This is why it's so important that we seize the reins of power next election. And so the more you're in a winner-takes-all environment where I'm going to take what I can out of this system the moment we gain control, to me, that's, that's a system that is not doing well. Because people's incentives have instead converted to pure individual rent-seeking. They have their group. They have their team within the system and whenever that team doesn't win, it's all losses to them. And so it be, it this this creates cyclicality. This definitely is is at the seeds of sort of increasing political division between groups. Because in my mind, legitimacy is most important because it means notwithstanding considerable uncertainty in the future. People believe the system will treat them fairly in those unknown future decisions that will definitely implicate their interests at some point. And so they're around not only because they're sitting there and saying, this is my expected stream of benefits from this system today, tomorrow, and into the future. If that is the only element of their calculus, those types of systems produce so much less than public governments that enjoy legitimacy from the eyes of their citizens. People can make the mistake of believing that legitimacy is binary. You're either illegitimate or legitimate. To me, it's a continuum and you want more and more of it, even though there will always be some people who are sufficiently dissatisfied with any public governance system to call it illegitimate. But if enough people are there because they're like, no, this whole, this whole system, you know, it kind of has everyone's back. Even if I don't win every decision, it'll be there considering my interests in the future. 
That's really important because otherwise, literally everyone's calculus at the table is in the next click of the wheel, which rents can I extract? And so for me, the more a system loses legitimacy, the more it becomes one of pure rent seeking, where people are just there to take what the system promises to them in an expectation sense. Trust that those systems just produce far less than the ones where people are like, yeah, I'm here for self-interested reasons, as well as a general belief in this broader enterprise that we're all engaged in. And so the more legitimacy withers, the more it collapses to a very much almost zero-sum sort of rent-seeking calculus. You know, there is a quite famous book by, uh, I think he's an anthropologist or sociologist called Edward Banfield, who went to live in to Italy in the 1950s uh, and went to the south of Italy to a town near, I know, Napoli or something like that. And he writes this book called The Moral Basis of a Backward Society. And it's about how people, they don't trust society, they don't, I mean, they just trust their family, I mean, the immediate person they know, and try to, you know, uh, get what they can from the rest of the community. So because they will assume that the rest will do the same. And so this creates, you know, a kind of game theory situation where everyone tries to cheat on the others, right? So because of the lack no, exactly. of... And imagine a world where intertemporal economic commitments were impossible. Where it's like, if you want me to do something, you pay me up front. The problem is, is if the other person doesn't trust you, they're like, so I have to sit here after I paid you and actually make sure you're doing the thing I paid you for? Like the essence of economic activity is that of intertemporal exchange. I'm in a world where I'm betting my retirement in a diversified way across more people than I could ever know personally. How did we get there? It's because I believe in, in intertemporal commitments between people I haven't met because of the institutional fabric that I enjoy. And so, it's again, it's not to claim the system I live in is perfect. People can take that kind of argument and think, so there's nothing wrong. Of course, there's room for improvement. But there are many societies, like the study you were describing, where that type of commitment is fundamentally impossible. What does that mean? Just far lower levels of economic activity, far lower levels of interpersonal activity that otherwise would be facilitated. And some people can take my focus on the economic as being, he's just a cold-hearted finance scholar. I am rostered in finance, so I'll own the finance label. But to me, more surplus left over to my efforts, I'm taking care of my wife and daughter better. I'm more present in those times of celebration with my friends, us at dinner in Paris. And so I want more economic surplus because more economic surplus means more people pursuing their many, many passions and their many, many meaningful relationships. And so for me, absent that background level of trust, it's just like a step change reduction in the order of magnitude that of output that a given system is capable of achieving. Eric, one last question. Um, what books, movies, or other materials would you recommend to people who are looking to learn more on these topics? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, For some reason, coming to mind is the very, very sad tale by Chinua Achebe, 
things fall apart. And it's for me often by study of the systems that don't work that we can gain an appreciation for the relative way in which systems that do work actually do so. And so that book made a lasting impression on me simply because it sort of characterizes and none of this is it it it, it characterizes a post-colonial environment that's truly tragic. And to me of course the colonial authorities are implicit in the disasters left behind in their wake. But it's 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 just depicting in a way what happens when governance breaks down on a fundamental level, just the level to which pursuing human meaning within one's own life becomes so much harder and someone is so much more subject to tragedy. And so that to me is it it is a bit of a dismal read, but it's 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 worth the pages. There aren't that many. And I honestly I think African authors don't get enough truck on other continents. So I'm always happy to happy to be recommending them. And in terms of movies, gosh. I'm gonna have to punt on that one. I'm sorry. I like it 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 in terms of the issue being is that movies are not a good medium to depict the slow, process-driven, design-driven, incredibly boring nature of <laughs> governance, which is which is the movies are necessarily stylized. They're giving you a glossy explanation, and, and understandably so. I don't want a four-hour movie about constitutional drafting, three hours of which is them just sitting at a table writing. I, I, like, I get it. But the problem is, is it can lead to an over, overly stylized representation of the systems that govern us, which is, you know, it's all just heroes and villains. And, you know, every decision is one that's clearly in the moment, the most important one. And the it's no, like a lot of the decisions that are important don't become revealed as important until after the fact. And on a lot of the structural decisions for human organizations, there are no heroes and villains. There's disagreement about what they should be doing and there are competing interests, but those interests can compete in good faith is part of the one of the points I really try to land when discussing governance, which is imagine you're a CEO and you have a limited budget and you've hired a highly talented person for your marketing department and a highly talented person for your R&D department as the heads of each of those departments. Shouldn't each of them be arguing for more money from you because of the awesome things that they're going to go do with it? If your budget is limited, you eventually have to tell one of them no. That's not a story of bad faith and one person being good and one person being bad. It's just that each of them believes in their respective missions within that organization. And the essence of governance is figuring out where to cut. And so for me, necessarily conflict will emerge in these organizations, and it doesn't have to be a story of the bad guy and the good guy. Um, I'm just going to make more recommendation myself, um, and also to you, maybe you, there is this book I'm reading now called The Gun, the Ship, and the Pen, that is about the constitutional building processes that start in the 18th century and how this happened in, of course, in the US, but also in Russia, the Tsars also developed the constitution um, in Germany, France, revolution, England, and all of this discussions about whether they have or not a constitution and the Magna Carta and stuff. So super fascinating um, topic. Uh, there's lots 
to learn from history uh, and lots of learnings to do about how to build constitution for for DAOs. So Eric Alston, thank you very much for being in our podcast. And yeah, see you around. Thank you so much. This was loads of fun. So this was the Justice Broadcast. Our guest today 